Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. It is an honor to be with you this morning to open God's Word. To those that I do not know, my name is John. If you ever have any questions or would like to talk or need prayer, I'd love to talk with you. We are returning this morning to a series that began before these two churches came together. If you're new here this morning, if you wandered in by chance, which it wasn't by chance, but if you wandered in and you're like, this is a a nice cozy place, uh, we are, as of October, two bodies that became one, uh, and praise God for his work. Uh, Prior to that happening, I I was working through uh, the book of Exodus, and we are going to return to the book of Exodus So if you have a Bible with you, you can find your way to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Find your way to chapter 19. We'll get there eventually. If you don't have a Bible, there are some available on the tables out in the hall. They are blue. They are free. Please take one if you need it. Give it to someone if they need it. But this is why we come together to open God's word. For God's word says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Bible tells us that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and so we give ourselves to the attention of Scripture, to God's Word, and to its teaching. Before we begin in Exodus 19, uh, I felt it right to make sure we understand the setting that we find ourselves in. Uh, No, I am not going to do a review of all 19 chapters. If you would like to listen to those sermons, they're out there. Uh, It took me a year to get through them, praise the Lord, Uh, but they're available. If you want to go hear them and listen to them, I encourage you to. Um, Those those are available there, but I'm just going to do a brief recap because understanding the Bible, this is a note for Bible students, understanding the Bible in the context within which it was written is key to understanding the Bible. We love memorizing scripture. I have started to become mindful of, that our memorization of Scripture may be a bit of a hindrance to our learning and understanding of God's Word. Because we memorize things that are not in their context. We, we memorize, and it's good to memorize Scripture. God's Word will not return void, and we should memorize Scripture. Pastor, are you saying the kids should? No, no, no. In fact, we're looking to start a children's program the start of February on Wednesday nights, and we're going to be focusing on Scripture memorization. We must memorize God's Word. But it is very important that we memorize Scripture and understand the context in which it was written. So if I simply opened Exodus 19 and start teaching without any background or understanding of the context where Exodus is placed in history, I'm going to end off in the weeds somewhere. And you're not going to be nourished by the word of God because we won't understand where it was written. So some background. Uh, Maybe you're new to the Bible. Uh, Praise God if you are here and you're new to the Bible. Praise God if you're here and you had to open to the table of contents to find out where Exodus was. I'm so glad that you're using God's word and becoming familiar with it. The book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It is the second of five books commonly called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is a Greek word. It sounds funny, but it's one that means something very simple. Five books. The Pentateuch comes from the word penta, five. We're familiar with in our culture, in our day, we're familiar with the Pentagon. If you see a picture of America's chief military headquarters, it's that pentagonal-shaped building in Washington, D.C., five equal sides with angles. Penta, meaning five, and tukos, meaning books or vessel or tool, the Pentateuch. In the Jewish faith, these five books are referred to as Torah or as the Torah or the law. 
if you are a Jew or in the Jewish faith, if you are a Judaizer, which this is very interesting, the tandem that plays here with Exodus and our, our, our ongoing study through Galatians as well, the Galatians were being held captive to what the law demanded. So as we read the first five books, we are reading what the Galatians are being held captive to. And Paul is right and saying, what are you doing? No, 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 you're not captive to that. The Pentateuch, meaning Torah or law. We are looking at Exodus specifically out of these five books, but they are five books that make a whole. In the Christian faith, in the Bible, as you read, as you learn, as you study, commonly referred to as the book of Moses or the book of the law, or the law of Moses. So those are the congruent themes. If you see Torah in today's language, which uh, you probably have to be studying and reading in specific circles to hear that word regularly, Torah is referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When you hear the law, the law of Moses, the book of Moses, which the greatest authority in the New Testament, saying that these five books were written by Moses, is Jesus himself. Everything written in the law of Moses was written about me. We're looking at Exodus specifically. Exodus is a narrative. Uh, You're going to hear me struggle to strike from my language the story of. I keep striking from my vocabulary the Bible story of. The story of the Bible is a written book. It is a factual document written by God, and there are different styles of writing found in it. Exodus is a narrative. Moses, in the first five books of the Bible, is recording history. He's not telling a story. And I'm sure we can all understand the difference between telling a story and recording history. Anybody can tell a story. But the story form of what Moses is telling is a narrative, is it a historical account. So I am not presenting the story of Moses. I am presenting the historical fact according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the prophet Moses. You must understand that it is historical, it is biblical history, it is human history. Moreover, the book of Exodus, if you sit here this morning through faith in Jesus Christ and are a Christian, it is your Christian history. You find your roots of faith in Jesus Christ in the first five books of the Bible. It's where it all begins. We're looking at Exodus specifically, but to understand it in its context, I want you to see what the five books are about. So quickly, Genesis is all about beginnings, the beginning of time, the creation of all things, the creation of man, all things being good, man's knowledge of God's promised deliverer, in light of man's disobedience to God, is found in the book of Genesis. It is the beginning of God's people, as he promises to Abraham. Genesis is the beginning. Exodus, we find God's people newly brought about in Genesis. They start as one family. Seventy of them go into into Egypt. We find in the beginning of Exodus, they are in trouble. They are under burden. They are in bondage. And they are unable to free themselves. They are stuck and held captive to the Egyptian oppressor, to Pharaoh. This is extremely important. Everybody's like, Pastor, does this have a reason? Yes, it does. I want you to think about Genesis being the beginning, and I want you to think about your beginning with Christ. 
God has a people and those people find themselves in bondage. They are unable to leave, to free themselves, and we see God deliver and redeem and begin dwelling with his people throughout the book of Exodus. In Leviticus, we find God directing his people how to worship him. Oh, it's such a hard book to read. Pastor, I'm part of the reading plan, and I know that sooner or later we're going to get to Leviticus and Numbers and oh, my head can't handle it. Maybe you picked up the Bible to read this year. I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to, what's this book numbers? And you started reading, and you quit. As soon as you started, you what does this mean? I don't get it. I don't understand. These things help us to fit these pieces together. The beginning of God's people and their fall, the bondage of God's people and their deliverance by God from inescapable bondage, Leviticus, how God's people worship God. In Numbers, we find the judgment of God on his people when they don't worship him the way he told them to. Do you see the cycle of yourself in the first five books of the Bible? This is why it's so important to understand these things. Numbers, we find the judgment of God on his people when they do not worship him. They do not trust his hand of provision. He brings judgment on them. And in Deuteronomy, sometimes referred to as the second law, Deuteronomy, we find the law of God directing his people not to turn to the right or to the left. I had this simple question early on in application. Are you heeding and obeying the word of God without turning to the right or to the left? God's word is a straightforward focus on him, follow him, obey him, blinders on, not distracted, not looking this way, not looking that way. I'm pursuing God. That is what God calls us to as his people. The author, without dispute, is Moses. Moses is a major character. You may not understand a prominent figure. You may not understand how prominent he is in the Bible. He is prominent in both Christian and Jewish faith, and of note, he's also prominent in the faith of Islam. Muslims give credit to Moses being an actual historical person. This is interesting. The three most Prevalent religions on the face of planet Earth all recognize this man. That's of note, and we should understand it. Moses is a major prominent figure in both Christian and Jewish faith and also in Islam. In the Bible, Moses is the third most used personal name in Scripture. That's significant because there are a lot of people in the Scripture. Moses is the third most used personal name behind the Lord, the name of God, Jesus, all of those things rolled in, and King David. The only two figures that surpass him in use of language. This is important. Why, Pastor? Why is this important? Because the Holy Spirit, through human writers, refers to Moses more than anyone else except for the Lord and King David. So if we understand how the Bible fits together, the law came through Moses, John told us. We looked in our Advent series, John chapter 1, verse 16, 17, and 18. The law came through Moses. We do not know how sinful and awful we are without the law. No one can keep it perfectly. If no one can keep it perfectly, what's its purpose? To show the sinfulness of our heart, the holiness of God and our need for a savior. His name appears in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament figure before both Abraham and David. He is mentioned in the Old Testament 800 or more times 
throughout all of the Old Testament writing. He is highlighted in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. He's highlighted in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. Moses is an important figure in our heritage as Christians. And also important, Moses, along with Elijah, was a man like us. He is not holy. He is not perfect. The Bible says he was more humble than any other, but he was a flawed man. We've seen some of his flaws through the first 19 chapters, 18 chapters of Exodus. It is believed that the book of Exodus, the Torah, was written around 1400 B.C. History points to this. It's not just a made-up story. I want you to be equipped with that when people start diminishing and demeaning the Bible as made up. It's not made up. It is historical, and there are facts that support it. Believed to be written around the 1400s, middle 1400s before Christ. In 1 Kings 6, 1, we are told that Solomon began to build the temple in the fourth year of his reign as king of Israel. That happened around 975 or 950 B.C. The verse opens with, in the 400 and 80th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, Solomon began to build the temple. There are claims that it was written around 1290, middle 1200s, but that's based on weak archaeology and not historical writing. Who is it written to? This is when we start to get more granular and nitty gritty as we begin to approach our text this morning. Who's it written to? This is important because we need to understand what the Bible means, and it only has one meaning. The Bible only has one meaning. Now there are, let's say, approximately 100 and let's say 20 people in this room right now. The Bible has one meaning, but that one meaning applies in every person's life in a different way, okay? So this is an important phrase that I want you as Bible students to understand. The Bible has one meaning, but it has many applications. The Bible has one meaning, but it has many applications. What I'm going to share this morning, I pray prayerfully through study, has one meaning, but it is going to fall into the lives of every hearer in a different way. Who is it written to? The book of Exodus is written to every new generation of Israel. Every new generation of God's people. They are always to remember what God has done for them and worship him. As our brother walks us through a psalm each Sunday morning, you may recall that many of them reflect on what God did in bringing his people out of Egypt. You will see out of Egypt referenced more biblically than many other things you may think of first. You might not think of out of Egypt, but the Bible and the Holy Spirit wants us to remember what God did in redeeming his people out of of Egypt and every generation of God's people is to remember what God has done for them and worship him. Now, the logical response to that may be, but I'm not a Jew. I'm not an Israelite. Why is it important for me, an American in 2024, to remember what God did then? Well, as we examine Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and found ourselves in those short synopsis points of those books, you can see how your life parallels what God did in creating, in redeeming, in dwelling with, how he's done that also for us. 
Remember that in our parallel study through the book of Galatians, we are learning, Galatians has told us, the offspring of Abraham is Israel. The offspring of Abraham is Israel. But Romans 9 teaches that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The Bible teaches us that through faith in the promise of God, one becomes true Israel. So, if you are here through faith in Jesus Christ, you have become the children of promise. You are counted as offspring, and the book of Exodus, therefore, is written for you to remember what your God has done in creating all things, in redeeming fallen mankind, of delivering you out of bondage that you could not escape, of bringing you through the wilderness, which we are now beginning our journey through, and of dwelling with you, which we will see as we begin in Exodus 19 today. We are reading a parallel history as we read Exodus. We are reading about those who are Israel in the flesh, national, ethnic, Israel, and we are reading about those who are Israel through faith in Jesus Christ by God's promise. Those histories run parallel to one another. They still do to this day. Our series theme, the purpose of Exodus specifically, to forever remind God's people of how he delivers, redeems, and dwells with them. We are focusing on God delivering, redeeming, and dwelling with his people. He has delivered them out of oppression. He has redeemed them through Exodus 12 and the Passover lamb. And now, as we step into Exodus chapter 19, we are going to see God beginning, preparing his people for his dwelling among them. Would you read with me Exodus chapter 19? Turn your attention, whether it's a physical Bible or electronic, would you follow along as I read Exodus 19, 1 through 15? On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There... Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples." for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. 
For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Would you pray with me? God, as we look to your word and seek to draw forth its meaning and how to live it and apply it to our lives, we ask for your help. I, Father, ask for your help knowing that I cannot communicate anything of worth unless your spirit is involved. So I pray, God, that you would use me and speak to me as you speak through me to those that are gathered hearing today. I pray that your word would have great effect as it goes forward, and we thank you for you telling us it will. Father, I pray as your word is proclaimed today, not only here, but in a great many places, I pray, God, that the sinner would be humbled to repentance and salvation. I pray, Father, that the holiness of your people would be lifted high, that we would be holy as you are holy. And I pray that Christ, the Savior, would be exalted. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> a kingdom of priests in delivering and redeeming God creates a people that he can dwell with. In delivering and redeeming, God creates a people that he can dwell with. However, he commands our obedience in order for us to be further holy and to be a habitation for the Lord. God creates a people and makes us holy and then commands our further obedience to further our holiness that he may live among us. As you study the Bible, you will note specifically through the Torah and most specifically in Deuteronomy, God will not dwell where there is not holiness. When I was a child, we sang a song in the church I grew up I don't remember what it was called, but I remember the line because we sang it a lot over and over. Holy ground. You're standing on holy ground. For the Lord is here and where he is is holy. That's biblically played out to be true. As we see over and over, when the Lord appears, the ground becomes holy. Moses in Exodus chapter 2. Take off your sandals for the place that you are standing on is holy. The beginning of Exodus chapter 3. What parent in the room, I'd love a show of hands, but let's just suppress them for a minute. What parent in the room has not said or at least thought, if you're going to live in this house, you're going to follow my rules. My oldest is 12. I have no idea how many times I've said that already. To live in my house there are rules you will follow. And I can only imagine that this gets exponentially harder and becomes much more of a saying as they get older. So those of you that have had children grow and leave your home, perhaps you remember the times when you told your children as they grew, if you're going to remain here, you're going to follow my rules. 
Now, this is a really interesting point to bring up because in our culture, we want to turn Christianity into something where there are no rules. Now, I want to help divide that correctly. There are rules to following God, and they're his. When man starts to insert his own rules on following God, we err. Oh, it's not about following rules. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. A relationship that has rules assigned by the one who initiated the relationship. God has rules. If you will live in God's house, there are rules that you are going to follow. Now, as we proceed, parents, we can keep in mind telling our young children, you're going to obey these rules. Parents, I hope you're commanding the obedience of your children. Parents of young children, I hope that you are commanding the obedience. Oh, we, can't, we can't demand, we got to let them. Listen, that is hogwash from our culture. God commands obedience. God is our example as parents. Parents, command obedience. You will obey. You will do this. You will be here. But also try searching for the heart. Also reach for the heart. What's causing the disobedience? What's causing the strain? God doesn't just say, obey me and not tell us anything else. As we journey now into Exodus 19, we can think about there being rules to living in God's house. This is the preparation of God's dwelling. God says, I'm coming down and I'm going to dwell with you. And in order for me to do that, there are things that you need to do. This runs counter to most, most of our theology. We don't do anything. God does everything. God saves us by his grace according to his mercy through faith in Jesus Christ, absolutely. But God over and over throughout the Bible makes us responsible to pursue holiness in light of the work that he has done. Before the mountain, it says, of note, because I know there are people who simply like the Bible and there are people who simply do not know the Bible, of note, this verse here, before the mountain, this is the setting for the remainder of Exodus and all of Leviticus, and all the way into Numbers chapter 10 to verse 11. The people of Israel are going to be before the mountain, for the Bible tells us in Numbers 10, 11, and 12, for two years. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the people left the wilderness of Sinai. This is not the point of the sermon today, but I want to ask. How many of you are simply not where you want God to have you? I'm tired of this wilderness, I'm tired of this mountain, I'm tired of this place. You said promised land. You said houses we did not build. You said milk and honey. You said vineyards we did not plant, wells we did not dig, cupboards we did not fill with food that we did not grow. And we're here in front of this piece of rock. I'm going to tell you, that struck a chord with me as I studied this week. God... When are you going to move me from out of this mountain? They're going to be before the mountain for two years. And do you know what is going to happen while they're before that mountain? The snapshot of what we'll study through the rest of Exodus is that God is going to come down and be in their midst. And they'll behold his glory. They will see Moses talking with him. And they just want to rush away from the mountain grumbling and complaining. Are you wanting to rush away from the mountain? Now, the point of the series and sermon today, Exodus 19, verse 3 and 4, you yourselves have seen. 
I made three notes as I studied this passage. What God did, what God tells us to do, and what God does when we do what he says. First, what God did. You yourselves have seen, verse 3, while Moses was up on the mountain, God spoke to him, tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. This is such a great picture of the grace and power of God in delivering and redeeming his people. Remember that in Exodus chapter 2, the people are crying out for help. Oh, that help would come. And the Bible says that their help, their cry for help, came up to God. The Bible says that God remembered his people. We've tracked through Exodus. Never once do they say, oh, God, deliver us. Oh, God, remove us from Egypt. Oh, God, remove this. Take that away. In fact, as we've tracked them coming out of Egypt, it's only been three months, verse, nine, verse, cha- verse 1 of chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, three times in three months, they have said, were there no graves in Egypt? Are we out here because there was a lack of water in Egypt? There's no water here. There was water in Egypt. Did you bring us out here to die? Because there's no, they want to go back to Egypt as soon as they're out of it. But what does God do? He graciously leads them to the mountain to worship him. This is such a clear picture and clear reminder that our deliverance, our salvation, stands squarely on the work of God. God saves sinful people who can't save themselves and who sometimes don't want saving. That may fall strange on your ears, but you all know someone who has fought against the saving work of God. Perhaps you yourself have done that. God saves sinful people when they are unable to do anything. He raises dead souls to new life. God makes us holy, and we are to respond in obedience. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Your enemies no more. Listen, you sit here today, and there are many enemies in the room, from physical to financial, to economical, to political, to other countries, to what's going to happen, to my anxiety, to my depression, to my anger. There are enemies that abound. But your greatest problem in life is sin, and that's defeated at the cross of Christ. For those who sit here this morning with faith in Jesus Christ, your greatest problem is solved. It's only on the up from here on out, do you understand? We walk around like, life is so hard. But eternity has been taken care of. And the greatest problem that you face in life is solved through faith in Jesus Christ. We are to respond in obedience. You saw what I've done. I did this to the Egyptians, to your enemy. I took care of your enemy and how I bore you on eagle's wings. I love these words. And brought you to myself. One of the things that you learn if you study preaching and teaching, and it's actually one of the things that I'm actually working on personally, is that you're never going to share everything you learn when you study. You never will. You're going to have way too much, you're going to talk for way too long, and you're never going to touch most of what you prepare and learn while you study. This is really significant. You saw how, what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings, and what how I brought you to myself. At the end of Exodus chapter 19, there's going to be a trumpet blast. 
and the people are going to assemble before God. We live in this space now where we're waiting for a trumpet call and God will take us to himself. And I just, I saw that, I'm like, wow, this is really awesome. God saves us and brings us to himself, and soon there's going to be a trumpet call of God, the voice of the archangel, a cry of command, and the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the air that we may forever be with him in eternity with God. And here is God gathering people to himself. Here is God with a trumpet call gathering, but we'll move on. You've seen what I did. I delivered you. I redeemed you. I brought you to myself. Verse 5. Now, therefore, here come the rules from God. Pay attention to what the word says. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. I mean, that's the whole deal. For every believer in the room right now, the whole deal of Christianity, the whole point, the whole purpose, the whole trajectory, the whole application is if you will obey God's voice and keep his covenant. It's all right there. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, he goes, it's going to go on, he's going to say what he will do if that happens. But I wonder, as we talk about it, Christian man struggling with addictions, obey God to put the bottle down and not look lustfully on a woman. Put away the addiction. Obey God. Oh, that's so hard. Yes, but no. Just obey. We've talked about this before. God is the ultimate picture of a parent. Just do what I say. Just do what I say. Don't look at that. Don't touch that. Don't go there. God gives all these rules that help our holiness and help us pursue him through a life of faith in Jesus. And he says, don't. Christian woman struggling with gossip. Obey God to only speak what is good for edification. Don't, don't say things you don't know. Don't say things you think that you're not sure of. Don't talk about other people. Say what builds people up. Obey God. Speak about God and his goodness. Christian young person struggling with honesty. Obey God and put off falsehood and deceit. Do you see, under, do you see how one meaning has different applications? Obey God and keep his commandment. Well, that's, no, no, everyone in the room can understand in your life right now how you need to obey God and how you need to keep his covenant. In your life, obey God. Christian marriage, struggling to love one another. Obey God in your marital role, and on and on and on and on we could go. Since God has saved us by his power and grace, we respond in obedience to all he says. Look what he says. If you'll obey me, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says, Moses, these are the words you're supposed to go speak to my people. I want to draw this out a little bit for us in the short time that we have. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Do you know how the, 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 the translation of those words, we like that thought of treasured possession, treasured possession. The, the bringing it forward in a better way would be to say, you will be my own. Like treasured possession falls a little lightly on the ears, but God is literally saying, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, I will possess you as my own. 
We talked about children living in houses and obeying rules. We understand this to a certain degree from that illustration in the room. You know children of parents when you see them. You, you understand how they conduct themselves. You're like, oh, well, that's, well, that's so-and-so's son and daughter. That's so-and-so's child. They're known by their actions because their obedience to their parent produces a good fruit. So as we obey God, as we obey him, we're identified with him. It says in the New Testament of the disciples as they preached, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. As we bear fruit, the Bible tells us over and over that as we are further sanctified in our life with Christ, we further look like Christ. We are identified with Christ. God here saying, I will make you my own. If you will obey me and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Think about a treasured possession. Why doesn't everybody in the room just think about that thing you have that you just love? Don't we all have it? We all have something at our home that we're just like, make sure nothing ever happens to this. Maybe you were given something by a grandparent one time. Here, don't break it. Like, we treasure things. Think about that treasure possession. Now I want you to think about how much you, I don't want to use the word covet, that's what's on the tip of my, but just how much you are like, I love this thing. Only you know what it is. Maybe people around you know what it is. Now I want you to think about that being you with God. You're mine. I love you. I keep you safe. I watch over you. I don't allow you to be in a place where harm can happen to you. You're mine, my own, my treasured possession. Since God has saved us, we respond in obedience, and as we obey, he makes us his own. He says you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is precisely what God does for us, makes us his own. Without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've examined on a number of occasions. Ephesians 2 tells us that without faith in Jesus Christ, we are without God, having no hope, and alone in the world. Living just a life that is seeing the good grace of God because this world was made by him, it's sustained by him, but it's all going to come to an end. And only for those with faith in Jesus Christ is it going to come to a good end. God says you are without hope, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. But he goes on, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. My own possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I want us to get a picture of a kingdom of priests we understand what a priest is. I mean, religion has really ruined it, but a priest is literally someone who stands between God and man and offers, offers ritual observances, if you will. A priest is the one who's holy and can go, but it's all going to be set up for us as we examine Exodus. A priest is one who goes for a people before God and ministers and worships. The people worship through bringing their things and the priest takes them and does that. One person doing that. 
The Catholic Church has made it so. This is what they still do. And they have elevated the priest and they have elevated people to ungodly, idolatrous positions. But that system is what we are talking about. One who does for another. A priest. The priest can worship. The priest can sacrifice. The priest can do. And here God says, if you'll obey me and keep my covenant, you will be a kingdom of priests. Pastor, can you help me understand how that... Yes. God broke down the barrier that exists between us and him through faith in Jesus Christ. And now I and you and every person through faith goes before God, worshiping God, offering sacrifice our own self to God that is pleasing to him. And he lives and works in us as we do. You don't come to me, some holy man. I don't go to some superior. You go before God. And I go before God. And all Christians, through faith in Jesus Christ, go before God. He makes a kingdom of priests. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation brought near to God. I love that. I wonder how many in the room don't realize that through faith in Jesus Christ, God is not some abstract out there, I wish it sounds good. The Bible says that through faith in Jesus, God brings you near Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 8 and 10, he says that unbelievers stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But Peter goes on to say that through faith in Jesus, I love it, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, through faith in Jesus Christ, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. This is not a mistake that Peter says this a thousand or so years later from Moses writing what God said on the mountain. Peter is reaching all the way back under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to what God said on the mountain and is saying, God makes a people. God brings near those who are far off and God makes you, just like he said to them, God makes you a priesthood. He chooses you out. He makes you a priest. He makes you holy. That's what God does when he delivers and redeems in order to dwell with his people. Why does God do this? Peter goes on, God does this that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In many faith practices and in many religions, and even in Christianity as it struggled through the Reformation in the 1500s, only holy people could do those things. A gathering like this with Bibles open would never even happen. The Bible was shut up in languages that you could not read, that you could not understand. And the great Protestant Reformation of the 1500s sought to reclaim the, the primary position of Scripture, put it back into the laps and hands of people that we may commune with God, that we may be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, that we may know because you have access to God, not someone on your behalf. Christian, how awesome to see God's work among the Israelites translating to us through Jesus. This is what Jesus does for us. Through faith in Jesus, we go to God. We have access with the Father. Praise God. Now, how this unfolded for Israel is important, and quickly we'll go through and 
see why it has relevance for us. Moses comes down from getting God's word, and he says to the people, God says, do this, and the people's response is essentially, we will. Now, I want everyone to think about that. When you all say, maybe you've never thought about it, but you're going to from now on. When somebody says something, and you collectively, around the room, smatterings, maybe you mumble it under your breath, amen. I need you to understand that what you're doing is saying that. We agree with that. Amen. We'll do that. We'll go there. You're, you're agreeing to, and, and now everyone's going to be thinking about their amen. And this is fantastic because God says that through Jesus, all of his promises are yes and amen and nothing different. And we go, amen, and then we never lift a hand to do anything else. We just wait on God to take care of it all. Moses comes down from the mountain and says, hey, God's coming and you need to do these things. And they say, we'll do it. You need to obey his voice and keep his covenant. And if you do, he's going to make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You'll be his own people. And the people say, amen. We will. We will do this. God's word, here's the note, God's word demands a response. You're hearing God's word today and you can stand up and walk out those doors and subsequently the following doors to your car and drive home and never do anything, but you will be held accountable when you stand before God for having heard his word and acted or not. It would be better for you to act and struggle through acting to get it right than to do like the guy who just buried the talent in the sand. Like strive. Man, I just keep failing, but that's okay, but keep striving. But you don't want to come to the throne of God when he calls us home and have him say, how did that go when you heard that message out of Exodus 19? What did you do? Oh. Respond to God's word. God's word demands a response, and God's word through Moses comes to the people, and the people say, we will do it. The Lord has spoken. What say you? We will do what the Lord says. So Moses tells the Lord. He's got this scene going on here. This is why we say the Bible is told like a story, but this is an account. Moses is telling us of his interaction with God, and that's awesome. Okay, Lord, I'll go tell him. Hey, God said this. We'll do it. Okay, great. He's like, do you understand? He's like the, the, the arbitrator almost. He's moving between two parties. You know what he really is? You can all make a note. You know what Moses really is? He's a preacher. Moses is a preacher. He's standing between God and man. And if I could illustrate this even further, he's, he's standing with you, with God's word between us and God. And God speaks through someone to you for you to do what he says. Do you understand? I sat down here to illustrate that I'm not up here void from needing to respond to God's word. He speaks to us just as he spoke through Moses. God speaks. His word is here. He speaks, and it's relayed through many men. Last week, my friend Phil. The week before, our brother John. Next week, Lord knows. Lord willing me, but who knows? He relays his word through his word, through a man to his people. Moses is a preacher. Hey, God, okay, God, I got it. God says do this. We're going to do it. Hey, God, they said they're going to do it, and then the Lord says, okay, but here's what they need to do. I wonder how many of you are thinking about what you need to do in light of what God has commanded you to do. God has told you to do things. How are you processing what he's told you to do and, and what are you doing about it? Look what he says to the Israelites. I'm coming to you. Moses, let them know. I'm coming that the people may hear 
and see, oh man, can you imagine this scene? We'll look at it next week. What does he say? Consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Moses, at the end, how many of you read it at the end of verse 15? Be ready for the third day and don't go near a woman. I read it and you were all like, what the? What in the world? That's like one of the most bizarre lines we've ever read in scripture. Oh, trust me, it's not by far the most bizarre. Don't go near a woman. You know why? Because God is coming to his people and God is so holy that there should be no distraction. He's literally saying, when Moses writes that and we read those words, he is literally saying, husbands, don't go near your wife. Don't be distracted from the holiness of God that is coming to you by your wife. God, my wife is a good thing. Yes, but your wife is not as good as me and my holiness for you. Good things can be distractions to us preparing our hearts, our minds, our lives for the holiness of God. I wonder, I've asked so many times, I'm gonna keep asking because you need to keep doing it. Did you even think throughout this week on Sunday, we will gather together to worship at the feet of the holiness of God? And did you make preparation to do so? Consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Oh, the illustrations that help us here. Christian, your garments have been washed through faith in Jesus. Washed white as snow. Christian, you've been prepared through faith in Jesus Christ. You've been made holy. You've been consecrated through faith in Jesus. This isn't spend the day today. Spend the day tomorrow. Wash your garments. Christ, is co- Christ has done it for you. And you are to continue pursuing it. This is the demand of God for the holiness of his people, for his people to be near him. Don't be distracted. Christian, as the Israelites were preparing for the third day, what about that third day? Like Jesus rose on the third day. Is there symbolism? Yeah, but in my week studies, I couldn't find the connection. I'm sure there's something. Three days, I'm sure we can find something. And you might be so smart that you know what it is, but I couldn't find it. But you know what I did find? Right now, We're waiting for that third day. God is going to come precisely as we will examine next week in Scripture to us again. You have opportunity to be pursuing holiness in your life, preparing your life for the coming of the Lord. Do you understand that we, like the Israelites, are not supposed to just sit down And take it easy until the Lord comes. This is why the first and second letter to Thessalonians is written. They're convinced that God is coming and there's nothing to do. No, we are to be preparing ourselves. Preparing our lives. Preparing our hearts. Preparing our minds. Being ready. Literally says, be ready for the third day. We are waiting for the return of Christ. And are you preparing yourself? Are you consecrating yourself? This is the beginning of God's preparations to dwell with his people. His coming to them and their obedience to him will make a holy habitation for the Lord to dwell in. Do you understand? Our 
preparing ourselves to gather together prepares a holy habitation for God to dwell in. This is still happening among God's people. As we prepare our own hearts and our own minds and as we gather together, God, I wish we could just see what they saw in the book of Acts. I'm convinced. The reason that we don't see what the book of Acts saw is because we don't take the time to consecrate ourselves and be ready for the holiness of God to come and prevail. We live in the same time as the book of Acts. Christ has come. He's resurrected. He's returning again one day. And we could see the same things if we would truly consecrate our lives and prepare for his coming and dwelling among us. How do we apply it? How do we make sense of all this? Pastor, help me. Can you give me something to go through the rest of this week? Thinking about the Israelites, obeying God, kingdom of priests, holy nation, being prepared, not going near my wife. What do I do? Christian, just as with the Israelites, recognize that God has delivered you from your enemy and redeemed you through Jesus to himself. That has happened. Through faith in Jesus Christ, that has happened. If you're here today and you're like, I don't think that's happened. You not thinking that's happened is a problem. And the only solution to that is calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. God is holy. Man is sinful. The only sacrifice, the only atonement for our sins is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we only find salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk with you more. If you're not sure where you stand before a holy God, I'd love to talk with you. Christian, You ought to be responding in obedience to all that God says, and you ought to be keeping his word. I want everyone to think about what God says in his word to you. What is God saying as you read his word to you? Man in the world, woman in the world, husband, mother, wife, father, brother, sister, teenager, college student, what does God's word say to you, and are you doing it? Are you keeping it? We ought to respond in obedience to all that God says and keep his word. Are you living a consecrated life? Are you preparing your life to dwell with God, to be in the presence of a holy God? Are your garments truly washed white as snow? Have you repented of sin? Are you confessing sin that's ongoing? Are you living a life ready for the appearing of Jesus Christ? Be ready for the third day. Lord willing, next week when we gather, we will see the Lord coming down on the mountain. We will consider his coming then, what that means for us now, and how we will live in light of it. For today, Christian, are you obeying his word? Are you keeping his covenant? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Exodus and for Moses. I praise you, God, for holy men of old who wrote as they were moved and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen your people to obey your word and keep your covenant. I pray, Father, that you would help us as we seek to sanctify and consecrate ourselves. You've said, consecrate yourself. Wash your garments. Oh, God, we come to you. We say, forgive us. Forgive us of the sins that dirty our robes and cleanse us by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. Continue to sanctify us unto yourself. Father, I pray for those in the room who may be far from you, I pray, God, that they would know the delivering and redeeming power of your hand. God, that they would see what you have done to our enemy. That they would see how you have brought us in haste out of bondage into yourself. 
And God, as we all stand before you, waiting for the day that you will come down to us and bring us to you, I pray, Father, that you would find us ready. Strengthen us as we go, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.